Welcome to a new episode of our podcast, Claiming Beethoven. Our first season is coming to an end, and as I mentioned in the previous podcast, we decided to close this season with several summaries. After having sketched the general ideas and main questions of our research project last time, today I would like to let the guests from our previous episodes have their say. This is Claiming Beethoven. We portrait a group of international musicologists and historians examining aspects of propaganda, collaboration, resistance, persecution and exile to learn about the distortion of historiography and the relevance for our own present times. This podcast by Michael Custodis and his team at the University of Münster is related to the project the role of Beethoven and his music in Nazi-occupied European countries. One major aspect that connects all the different regional perspectives are questions how, when and why Beethoven and his music were utilized as means of political debates, how Beethoven himself was involved in political matters, what kind of political thinking this might have been, and how the struggle for Beethoven's legacy intensified when the nationalistic tensions increased during the 19th and early 20th century. Therefore, we call our episode today Why Beethoven? Cultural Heritage as a Field of Rivalry Before 1940. Asking for the origins of debates concerning Beethoven and politics, one has to go back deep into the 19th century and even back to the composer's own lifetimes. Beate Kraus, researcher at the Beethoven House in Bonn, explains the reasons why Beethoven himself had to deal with politics. Oh, I think there are many reasons. One of the reasons is that Beethoven himself was very interested in, let's call it, political music of his time. Let's think, for example, of the funeral marches he uses in one piano sonata and in the Symphonia Eroica. This is quite a quotation of French revolutionary music. And um, so there was a link between Beethoven's way of composing and politics of late 18th century. And of course, people started asking the question, what does he mean with quoting this music? What, what They recognized this music. And let's take the example of the Symphonia Eroica. There was a the question, who is the hero he is referring to in the funeral march? Is it Beethoven himself? Is it Napoleon? Is it Louis Ferdinand of Prussia, who was killed during a battle in 1806? Is it Admiral Horatio Nelson's death he's referring to, or one has even thought of um, the English General Ralph Abercrombie, who was killed in the Battle of Alexandria in 1801. So you have many people asking, what does Beethoven mean by composing this music? So he, he very early became a magnet of opinions, and um, so you could, could quote other things. For example, Beethoven, going back to the music of the revolutionary period, this is also the case in the Fifth Symphony, when you have the fanfare in the, in the final movement, there is an anecdote quoted many times that when there is the, this fantastic C major finale starting, that it was called Symphony of Victory, Battle Symphony or something like that. I mean, there, there has always been this link between Beethoven as a composer and Beethoven as a magnet of opinions. Christine Siegert, the head of the archive of the Beethoven House, so to speak, their research department, highlights Beethoven's 
influence compositional reactions towards political incidents, which include famous pieces such as the Eroica Symphony. Or one could mention quite early points. The first point I would mention maybe is Beethoven's own production for the war against Napoleon and the Viennese Congress. Beethoven has written quite a lot of music for this event, so two theater pieces and one cantata. And it is astonishing how politicized this is. And you have different ideas of who fights against France in this case. And one aspect of this is that in these times, very strong nationalism came up. And Beethoven has written incidental music for one of these pieces. It is named Leonore Prohaska, and she was a woman who dressed with men's clothes and fought into these battles. And I think that might be the first point that really comes to mind that has really strong connections with war, with the idea of nationalism and this new idea of building national structures we, uh, which were different from older structures of the Holy Roman Empire, for example. And I think the second thing that comes to my mind is the first performance of the Ninth Symphony, because it was in Vienna, which was in a way a shame because it had been commissioned by the London Philharmonic Society. And of course, when Philharmonic Society is commissioning a work, this society should be the first to perform it. However, Beethoven initiated the first performance in Vienna and he was sustained to do that by some aristocrats and people of Vienna, of cultural Vienna, who said that it was a national necessity to have this great work first performed in Vienna. Uh, once more, we have the idea who has the right to have Beethoven's first performance. And you have also the idea of rivalry situation between two countries or between two cities, maybe in this case, so London and Vienna. Uh, nevertheless, once more, we have this idea of nationalism. And maybe a third thing, uh, which is a little earlier, not so well known, but also well known, it is the Diabelli Variations. It's a, Vaterl a so-called Vaterländischer Künstlerverein, which incorporates all composers in Austria in that time, uh, which seemed relevant to Diabelli. And once more, there's the idea of a sort of nation building with music, in this case with different variation compositions by different composers on one and the same scene. If the view on Beethoven himself might serve as a microscopic part of our topic, the general context of 19th century aesthetics and culture, somehow the macroscopic counterpart, is equally important to understand the role of music under political circumstances. Friedrich Geiger, head of the Department of Musicology at the University of Music and Performing Arts in Munich, summarized the intellectual climate which supported the debates about music and society during the age of Romanticism. Well, I think there are several reasons. First of all, the separation of the two areas was 
a very strong point in the program, in the aesthetic program of the German Romanticism of poets like uh, E.T.R. Hoffmann, Wackenroder, Tieck. They made a concept of music which is kind of contradicting the sphere of politics of everyday life and they thought and they claimed that music was a, a kind of area where you could retract yourself from yeah kind of stuff like politics and everyday business which was considered to be in the lower regions and um, this kind of music as a realm for dreaming for escaping from the hard reality this had very uh, very large effect especially on a thinking about music in germany but uh, in other countries as well and another point i think is especially when we when we look at beethoven the idea that that music itself is a kind of is kind of a realm of power and you see this in anecdotes where beethoven is seen as a as a kind of equal to kings noblemen it already happened during his lifetime you can see it in the speech grill parts i held on beethoven's funeral actually where most of the topics of the beethoven reception uh, already can be very well grasped as an answer to my question if and how strongly Beethoven's symphonies and sonatas served as the primary examples of musical autonomy, Christine Siegert doubted the singularity of this concept of absolute music as the only possible answer and confronts this concept with the practical circumstances of musical works in the bourgeois society, which in German we would call Bürgerkultur. For a first thing, I would say it's too easy, but of course it's true as well. It's true as the symphonies became repertoire in the 19th century, they were established as the repertoire of the symphony. I'm nevertheless not so sure concerning this idea of autonomous music. Of course, I know that it was a very, very influential concept in the 19th century and uh, that many people has contributed to this narrative. But in my opinion, you forget quite a lot of things when you approach symphonies like this and you forget also things or neglect things which are or could be relevant for our context, so political ideas concerning Beethoven. We have very famous symphonies which are not so autonomous as one might think. We have the Eroica Symphony and of course very many people know this very famous story about that it should have been dedicated to Napoleon and then Beethoven was angry as Napoleon declared himself emperor of the French and then he has torn obviously we don't know the title page of the autograph because the autograph is lost we can't prove this neither proof nor that it's not true uh, of course it's the best for a story like this of course it has both sides of the coin and it has of course a funeral march in it which is deeply involved in political ideas and also for example the um, slow movement of seventh symphony was aware in the reception as a funeral march as well sometimes so we have also the fact that people attributed ideas of something because there is nothing written like a funeral march or anything but nevertheless we have this idea that it could be used as a funeral march or it has some musical aspects of a funeral march And that's very interesting, I think, because these symphonies that should be autonomous and 
reflect nothing than themselves are something that can be the object for projections of meaning. And I think this has been the case with Beethoven during all history. And maybe it's because it's autonomous that it's so easy to have the possibility to have projections because in other cases you would yet know what is meant or you would have an idea. In this case, people can have their own ideas and rely them to Beethoven symphonies or other works. And I think it's very interesting to see how these works then change themselves in a way in their own history. Lolita Fuhrmanne, professor of musicology at the Latvian Academy of Music, contributes an important aspect regarding the international network of Beethoven admirers and the multinational population in areas such as the Baltic countries. The music of Beethoven, and this is West European classic, great classic, uh, was performed in Latvia already since the beginning of the 19th century. And that's true. So waiting for our conversation, I have fixed some, some data for myself. And so can I say, for example, that the first performance of Beethoven's music in, in Riga was in 1803. It's quite early. And this was the first symphony of, of Beethoven. And later we can see um, the wider resonance of this young music in that time. For example, the fifth symphony took place in Riga in 89 or 1811. The pastoral symphony as a full cycle was first performed in 1814, but the first three parts of the symphony were already played in the concert in 1810. The opera Fidelio was first performed in Riga in 1818 at least once in the season. So Fidelio became a beacon, a beacon for, for Riga's society. Yes, I, I want to say that uh, Fidelio was constantly in the repertoire of the Riga city society because, because uh, Riga society was the German society in the 19th century. And these traditions also affected the culture of uh, independent Latin. Getting closer to the end of the 19th century, where political tensions increased and modernity as well as progress became influential factors in musical terms, Friedrich Geiger underlines the importance of Beethoven, who was turned into the role model of a musical revolutionary. I think a very important feature, which is common to both realms, is revolution. On the one hand, it's aesthetic revolution, or revolution in an aesthetic sense in music. And I think revolution in music means more than in other arts, more than in the visual arts or in literature, because you hear it so well if, if something is really new. It's revolutionary. Sounding revolutionary is, uh, I think, is more powerful than seeing something revolutionary in the visual arts. So, Revolution in music is is a, a very important thing, and Beethoven saw himself as a as revolutionary, and Wagner as well. And they were seen by others as revolutionists. And I think this clearly is a kind of metaphor, but in the aesthetic realm of music and in the field of politics, that's a kind of link between these two areas. 
One connecting point between numerous episodes of our podcast was the attempt of nationalistic debates to claim Beethoven for their own demands and hereby to neglect, downplay or even incorporate his ties to German culture. The first of several examples brings us to France, as Beate Kraus explains. I think Beethoven was always there. Maybe this is this is an interesting point to ask why, but it seems that there is a permanence of, of Beethoven in music life and whatever happened, he was there and uh, there is no contradiction between modernism and Beethoven. And if you go to the history of arts and um, there are fantastic sculptures and new interpretations of Beethoven as, an, as a man and as an artist. Beethoven wanted to be international and he also for reasons of earning money, he sold his music to French publishers, to English publishers and to publishers on the continent. He was quite international. But um, when the question is who owns Beethoven, I think that um, it's difficult to answer this question in Beethoven's lifetime. But um, of course he was considered as one of the most important German speaking composers of his time. But I'm very careful. If because we know that there has always been this mismaking about Beethoven as this severe German male, strong composer on the one hand, and on the other hand, let's say Rossini and Italian opera or French opera. This, this has political reasons. I don't think that in Beethoven's lifetime there was such a contradiction. Yeah, I think we have to go back to the history of Beethoven performances in France. And there was the famous Société des Concerts du Concert this means a professional orchestra related to the conservatory of France. This was a state conservatory, so it means this is not a, not a private institution. And they started performing Beethoven symphonies in 1828 and became one of the most famous orchestras and interviews of, of Beethoven. So they had very early this feeling that they are the best performing Beethoven. And if we quote Richard Wagner, who was in France, he confirmed that they were really fantastic. So they had this idea that of course Beethoven was theirs. And um, we see that whenever in France there are revolutionary movements, this happened in several times during this 19th century, Beethoven was quoted. And um, there's this very strange situation that during the German-French war in 1870, there was a concert organized and um, the money they, they earned for this concert, they wanted to create a and this canon, they wanted to baptize it Beethoven to, well, to defend France against Germany. Yeah, and uh, Beethoven was considered as a French composer, so to speak. And they very early understood that there was this relationship between French music of the revolutionary period and Beethoven's candle. But how did they get around uh, the fact that he was born in Bonn and that he was a German-speaking, at least, composer? Or did they turn him into a European? I think the question where someone was born was not such important. So Paris was so international at this period and so many people who made their career in France at this time were not of French origin. And this, this has a long tradition. I mean, there were all the Italians coming uh, to, to France and so on. So Paris was just an international uh, place. We started in 1870 with the German-French war. And then I quoted Vincent Dandy, uh, who in 1906 wrote his biography on César Franck and as the only successor of Beethoven. And then during the First World War in 1916, there is Camille Mauclair and he 
recognized that Beethoven was a German. And he said Beethoven is a German, but a German before terrible Germany. So there are two Germanys. There's good Germany and the terrible Germany. And just to quote another um, remark on the Ninth Symphony, he says, all of Germany has lost the right to own his music. So, I mean, one should say that he, he was not simply regarded as a French person, but even if he was regarded as a German, it occurs the question, which kind of Germany do we refer to? And I think this quotation, Beethoven is a Germany, but a German before terrible Germany. This is, this is quite interesting. The second example of nationalistic attempts to incorporate Beethoven comes from Italy, where Friedrich Geiger located debates about the composer being an Italian by nature. Around the time when Mussolini came to power, there was kind of musical movement in Italy, which we call Sinfonismo. And that was the attempt to gain the realm of symphony as well as opera. So it's hard to name symphonies composed in Italy in the 19th century. And some composers tried to change that. And they were interested in the kind of new Sinfonismo. And you couldn't do this without concerning Beethoven as a model. And interesting is that from this perspective, Beethoven was conceptualized as an original Italian composer uh, because he has been taught by Salieri, Antonio Salieri, which in fact was an Italian composer and he was the teacher of Beethoven for a while. And Italian musicologists like Fausto Torrefranca and others, they tried to prove in their scientific work that how much Beethoven owed to the Italian musical tradition. So you could use Beethoven from an Italian of fascist perspective, he has been seen without doubt as a great composer. The greatest composer in the history of symphony would have been very hard to deny this, but they tried to turn it around as, as an argument for Italian music history because they, they tried to prove that Beethoven's origins could be seen in Italian music. The third example is even a little funny and was provided by Lolita Fuhrmanne, who examined open-air concerts in Riga where the national attribution of the music being performed was so strong, even strong enough to scare small children. I have to say that Beethoven was always performed in Latvia and his music was played in concert halls, in opera, in song festivals and also in garden concerts. I remember an article in the Riga's German daily press in the 1920s. One observer wrote about a concert with Beethoven music in the Central Garden in Riga, a lovely place for walking with children, for young mother and grandmother. And uh, this observer wrote that the symphony of Beethoven was played so lewd that uh, the little children cried in the baby carriage <laughs> and uh, please give more Boccherini. So Beethoven was played uh, in all areas. But I think it's very important that uh, Latvia has a special relationship with uh, Beethoven also, because here lived the people who personally met Beethoven. And because here lived, uh, for example, Karl Amenda, a pastor in Kurland, uh, this is the best region in Latvia. And Amenda, as, as we know, was Beethoven's friend from his youth. And Beethoven dedicated to Amenda his first uh, string quartet. And 
It is significant that Amanda's tombstone are engraved. The words, this monument was built by Beethoven's friends in Latvia. Our example number four, contributed by Magda Jadek, professor of musicology at the University of Krakow, reveals complicated internal rivalries in Poland between the dominant cultural scene in Warsaw and ambitious circles in Upper Silesia. Here, a translation of German lyrics for a work by Beethoven could become a matter of national pride, respectively, of cultural independence. Beethoven played a special role, besides of repertoire which expressed nationalism of both sides, besides of patriotic, newly created repertoire, dedicated mostly to amateur choirs. It developed a trend to perform classical music. Although in Upper Silesia there was no professional orchestras in interwar period, they invited orchestras from outside, mostly from Breslau. Schlesische Philharmonie played in Upper Silesia very often. But sometimes there were created amateur ensembles which will be able to perform greatest works. Among others, in interwar Katowice, Katowice, there were active two well-known, very good choirs, amateur choirs. The first one, more technically advanced, was the German choir with 19th century tradition. Its name was Oskar Meister was the founder, not Meister at Masters, but Oskar Meister, it was the name of founder. This choir was led by Fritz Lubrich, the organ player, conductor and composer, and it has in the repertoire Ninth Symphony by Beethoven and Mr. Solemnis. Second Polish choir, led by political activist and conductor Stefan Marian Stoliński, its name was Ogniwo, did the same. They learned Ninth Symphony, and although they could not perform Mr. Solemnis because they were less professional, for example, they performed Choral Fantasy, Opus 80, and they organized whole programs of Beethoven, and these programs were prepared both, both by Lubris German choir and Polish choir on the occasion of important uh, anniversaries, jubilees, and so on. The Beethoven year in 1927 witnessed the performances of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony on both sides, by Germans and by Polish. And what is very important and very characteristic, already in 19th century, the text Schiller's text to final part of Ninth Symphony was translated into Polish by Catholic priest and social activist Norbert Bończyk. The copy of the score, printed score with handwritten Polish text, is now preserved and, and we can study it at the Library of Music Academy in Katowice. It was an important demonstration of the fact that Polish culture belongs to high European culture, as Polish, not as international. So it was need to have text in Polish, but to European uh, universal work. 
As easy as it might seem to state in general terms that the beginning of Hitler's reign in Germany accelerated the nationalistic takeover of culture, which in Germany we would call Gleichschaltung, as complicated it can get to separate established traditional relations between Germany and other European countries and propagandistic project by the Nazis in the late 1930s. Alexandros Hachiolakis, musicologist in Athens and the director of the Friends of Music Society there, gives a striking example how difficult it can be to evaluate technical support from Germany in political dimensions. One couldn't recognize this as propaganda at the time, I'm sure. If we move back to time, we go into a time machine and go then. You wouldn't recognize it as propaganda in that sense. Because, for instance, when the radio is being established in Athens, the radio station of Athens, which is a German thing, I think it was the, the local Telefunken company that was in direct connection with Germany that established it. It will seem as something of a progress. You know, you have radio finally, which is very, very important. The interrelation that they are being established. I mean, for many Greek musicians, Germany, apart from anything else, you know, news didn't travel as fast as they travel now, I suppose. So the idea that Greek musicians will have about Germany, it's that this is the land of Beethoven, basically, and the, the land of Wagner. That's it for them. So any kind of, you know, implication with Germany in the Greek musical system will be very much welcome, I will have said. I mean, who wouldn't like to have the Frankfurt Opera coming here to Athens to perform The Ring? Or other things to happen, you know, a famous German conductor to come to conduct this, the, it was not even state orchestra, state orchestra became later, and actually during the occupation became, I think we'll, we'll come to that in a bit. So who wouldn't want something like that? So when you are involved in a country which doesn't have all the necessary infrastructure in the musical industry, let's call it like that, your involvement in it, and the German involvement in it, it would be very much welcome, as you can understand. For the fascist regime in Rome and the National Socialist government in Berlin, music became a highly important factor to present Italy and Germany as lands of music, as Friedrich Geiger points out. First of all, it is important, as you mentioned, that Italy as well as Germany, they saw themselves, or, or the Mussolini dictatorship and the Hitler regime, they, they saw their respective countries as lands of music. Music is very important tool of identification for both countries. And as you said, in Italy, it's mainly opera. Uh, in Germany, it's mainly symphony and instrumental music. But Mussolini as a person had a very lively interest in music. He was playing the violin, not very bad, as we know. There are photographs with him playing the violin and Hitler himself is well known, had lively interest, especially in Wagner and, uh, but in other music as well, also in kind of uh, vernacular music and, and operetta and, uh, and so on. So they both were very interested in music and not only the dictators themselves, but also the people who surrounded them. They knew very well that music is the perfect tool to emotionalize politics. Music is very apt to bring emotions to the sphere of politics. So if we said before that belonged to the 19th century, the idea to, to separate the realm of politics on the one hand and music on the other hand, they knew it could be very effective to bring these two together again, especially because in the 19th century it was so common to separate it. It was especially effective to bring them together because music was not suspicious of being used for politics. So it was it, it was very effective to use music for politics because no 
one thought that music would be used for politics. With an example from the far north of Europe, Arnulf Mattis, professor of musicology and the head of the Greek Research Center in Bergen, contributed an important aspect. In relation to Beethoven as synonym for the heroic struggle of man, the Norwegian Prime Minister Wittgen Quisling and his Nazi cabinet instrumentalized music and German culture to hide propaganda behind artistic matters. Speaking of composers, for example, speaking of the Wirkungsgeschichte, for example, of, you know, there's, there's not so, there are not so many kind of open statements you might find because exactly it was handed to uh, take down the, the German influence and to develop their own independent musical idiom and language. So, but on the other hand, if you're looking more the details, like, like, for example, already Greek did that there, of course, there was, there was a, an influence and also namely Beethoven is mentioned some in some letters or here and there. And, but it's, it's not necessarily, a, um, can I say that you, you can pin down it in their, in their concepts, in their aesthetic concept or co compositional concepts, but more like, like an ideal, I think. And, and for example, the topos of, of, of struggling, this, um, um, asperat astra principle and so on. And this you find quite a lot. And this is, this is maybe not directly, not always directly, uh, um, related to Beethoven, but it's quite obvious that it's really, this principle is, is taken from, from this Beethoven idea. And, um, maybe also the, the heroic and also the, the rigid, uh, rigid form. This, this very, very, um, As something you called in one of your essays, yeah. the idea of monumentalism. Monumentalism, like maybe. Grand, the, the grand form, the grand expression. Yeah, as, as, a, as an ideal, for example, for, for symphonic uh, works in the symphonic uh, genre. And what's maybe not so much known is that uh, there are a lot of symphonies written by Norwegian composers from this uh, generation and also written this years before the war, but also under the war during the war. We have dozens of, of symphonies and, and uh, of course the, the, this, this generation that there is still kind of the, the idea of a symphony is related to, to Beethoven principle, Beethoven model. And I think even like composers like Saber and so on, who really wrote a lot of symphonies, they had this as a, as an ideal. Um, but, um, but that didn't kind of explicitly relate to it. Coming to an end of this episode, one question remained open so far, which makes the title of our episode and of our project in general so difficult. Why Beethoven? Additional questions are, what's in the music itself? Why was Beethoven's music so attractive for political purposes? And which part of his repertoire in particular are we speaking of? Friedrich Geiger tried to give one of many possible answers, highlighting attempts after 1933 to establish a heroic Nazi Beethoven. I think it was a kind of eclectic Beethoven they tried to conceptualize. And I think they used Beethoven, or they tried to use Beethoven as a kind of model for what they considered should be German or Germanness. And uh, that would be, first of all, I think the heroic aspect. So the middle, the so-called middle period of, of Beethoven's work is uh, the most attractive and the most important for, for the national uh, socialists, starting with the Eroica and uh, the so-called heroic symphonies up to the ninth. What they significantly 
less interest can be seen for the so-called uh, late work of Beethoven, which is complicated, which is not very attract the masses. And uh, the early works, they, uh, they were used uh, as well, but not as much as the middle period, because this, this was too close to Mozart and Haydn, and they are less apt for uh, conceptualized Beethoven as a genius, which he is considered to be in the middle period. So also string quartets, for example, are too esoteric as a genre to be used as a political tool. Not necessarily so, especially string quartets of the of the middle period. They are not maybe not purely heroic, but uh, they could they could stand for a kind of German innerlichkeit, kind of uh, of gemütstiefe, a deafness of, of mind, uh, all these cliches you would say about uh, German-ness, where you could use Beethoven for as an example. Having visited so many different, often uncomfortable, difficult and controversial chapters of the politically inspired Beethoven reception, I would like to close with the contribution from Eric Levy, professor at the Royal Holloway University of London and one of the grands seigneurs among our researchers, who reminds us of the singularity of Beethoven and his music. Well, I think it was the energy, the, the, the fact that it could take you to realms of experience which you don't which it part which aren't part of normal human human life and human activity um spiritual positive um and actually if we want to sentimentalize beethoven's life the fact that he could create this music uh, given all the physical disabilities he had that's that's an inspiring story for most people isn't it i mean i'm not i don't want to kind of sugarcoat it but i mean You know, against difficulties, none of us, none of us, are, I mean, a music, for a musician to lose his hearing is about the worst thing you could, could imagine. Thanks for joining our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this second of our four summaries to end this first season. Today, focusing on cultural heritage as a field of rivalry before 1940. We continue next time with the years 1940 to 45 under the title music between all fronts. So please tune in again and in the meantime visit our website musicandresistance.net and follow us on Instagram if you like. This was Michael Custodis speaking. Thanks for your kind attention and goodbye for today. This podcast was presented by Michael Custodis and his team. Francesco Bruno took care of editing, sound design and production. <laughs>